You know, it is good to be with God's people and to worship the Lord and to declare His majesty and to celebrate His attributes and His perfections as we read about them in the Scripture and the renewal that we have in Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we gather here uh, week by week is not simply because it's what nice people do on Sunday morning instead of sleep in, right? The reason we're here is to worship God, to declare the excellency of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen? And uh, one of the things that I get to do that's really fun for me, one of the things I really enjoy, is I get to welcome folks who have decided to commit their lives to us uh, as uh, members of the official members of the uh, of, of Chillicothe Bible Church, uh, those who have committed to use their spiritual gifts to um, uh, submit themselves to the leadership here and to the Word of God, uh, those who are willing to um, help us guide the direction of the church overall uh, as they uh, participate in members' meetings and vote and that kind of thing. And so I want to do that this morning uh, for Shelly Davis. So Shelly, if you'd come down. Come on down. You're the next contestant. All right. Um, We're really glad that Shelly has joined us. Uh, She had actually applied to be a member last fall and then had uh, gone through cancer and has now um, come back out on the other side of that and is doing very well. So uh, we were privileged and blessed to be able to do her interview this last week uh, as elders and uh, and hear her very clear testimony of coming to faith in Christ as an eight-year-old girl, as a missionary shared with her about heaven and hell and Jesus Christ died and rose again uh, to save sinners, uh, which was great. And um, so we want to welcome Shelly. Uh, first of all, we have we have three questions for you. You, I know you love to speak in front of people, so <laughs> it's your favorite thing. Uh, but uh, if we have three questions for you, and the answers are simple, just say "I do," just like it's your wedding. Um, first, do you confess faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and do you desire above all else to live for Him? Do you declare your intention to live in submission to the doctrine of the church as expressed in its confession of faith? Do you promise to support this congregation with your prayers, with your faithful attendance at its services, by your encouragement of its members, the willing use of your talents in its ministry, and the giving of your means as God prospers you? Then, Shelley, as Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Also, as Jesus said in, later in Matthew in chapter 10, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I pray that you will lose your life and find it in Jesus Christ. So let's pray for Shelley and welcome her. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, Shelley is, um, is willing to be counted among those who have laid their life down for the glory of the kingdom of God and who are willing 
to exchange their life for the one that Jesus gives. Uh, Father, we thank you that she is part of the public witness now as a member of the church. She is part of the public testimony of this is what a Christian looks like. This is what a Christian life, uh, as it is lived, this is the example. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, Shelley's life would be fruitful here, that she would utilize her talents, glorify you in serving with her spiritual gifts, that she would uh, truly experience what it's like to be part of the body of Christ and to um, be part of the family of God. And Father, we pray that in all these things, as in all things, that Jesus Christ would be glorified and honored and lifted up, that men might praise your name even though they do not know you. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, if you have skipped ahead in your Bible reading, or if you have uh, have looked at uh, maybe your notes for this morning's sermon, we're going to uh, be in the second half of 1 Corinthians 6, and so as you make your way there, let me share a parable with you. Uh, years ago, a businessman took a trip to Central Africa to see the sights, and one day, as part of his daily routine, he got himself a cup of coffee and a newspaper and sat down at a cafe next to the river that ran through the middle of town. And just as he was turning to the sports page, a gigantic 750-pound, 15-foot croc jumped out of the river, grabbed the guy at the next table, and starts dragging him back toward the water. And the man jumped up, starts yelling and screaming, Hey, 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 crocodile! And he's fighting the croc off. And everybody at the cafe pays no attention. They just avert their eyes. And eventually he's able to fight the croc off. But the guy's arm is broken and he's bleeding. They get, finally get the ambulance there and bandages up, and he's off to the hospital to get more completely patched up. And as he pays his, as the businessman pays his bill to the cafe owner, he asks him a question. He says, "What's the deal? I didn't know there were crocs in that water." And yet, when one jumped out and grabbed somebody, everybody just paid no attention like this was a normal occurrence. And the owner of the cafe said, well, look around at the other patrons. And as he looked, he could see that many of them had scars, bite marks, missing limbs. And he said, you see these folks? Because lots of them have crocodile scars. But in our culture, it's considered rude, and so we don't talk about crocodiles. We don't talk about them. And so we don't discuss it, and we don't talk about it, and we hope that nobody we know will be 
the next victim. And that seems like a totally crazy story, doesn't it? But the fact is, is that that village's crocodile problem is a lot like the problem that our culture experiences as it relates to sexuality. And everybody knows that sex is powerful and potentially deadly and destructive. But we in the church are very often reluctant to talk about it. And we just kind of hope that none of our kids are destroyed, but we don't want it discussed because it's considered rude. And yet, a lot of our people, as you look around, have missing limbs and gaping wounds from the damage that they suffer. Amen? In fact, I think our culture's warped view of sex and the, the widespread damage that it does and the, the wide adoption of our culture's viewpoint on this issue in particular is quite possibly the number one problem affecting the American church right now. In fact, if you want to know my theory, I, I don't have a lot of data for this, and I certainly don't have revelation from God on it, but this is my theory. That one of the reasons that so many Christian men in particular, why there are not in a great abundance of men, not males, men, who are courageous, who are passionately uh, uh, serving the Lord as God, who are devoting themselves before Him, who are leading their families, as the Bible says. One of the reasons that those guys are not completely rare as hen's teeth, but they're not an abundant, overabundance within the church, is because of this issue. That sexual sin and the guilt and shame that goes along with it has got many Christian men by the throat. In fact, if you read the statistics from places like Leadership Magazine, they will tell you that 90%, are you ready for this? Of Christian, not men, pastors have a problem with pornography. 90%. And that in excess of 90% of the general run of Christian men and in excess of 30% of Christian women have issues with this kind of stuff. I don't know if you know it, but in our wider culture, 40% of porn users now are women. It takes a different form a lot of times. It's not necessarily a video or a picture. A lot of times it's written in books like Fifty Shades of Grey and whatever Harlequin is offering or whatever, you know, down, in the, down at the grocery store, the drugstore, what have you. Forty percent are women. This is a huge issue, not just in our culture, but also in the church. And I dare say there are some within our church who are carrying scars and who maybe openly 
bleeding right now over this stuff. And so we're not going to talk about crocodiles today. We are going to talk about sex and talk about it from God's perspective and about fleeing sexual immorality because this is the thing that will drag you to your death if you let it get hold of you. Amen? I'm going to be, do my best not to be crass, not to be crude, but too many people carry scars to leave this undiscussed and untalked about. And the scriptures speak about it emphatically and clearly in a both positive sense and a negative sense. Next week, we're going to leave 1 Corinthians and we're going to talk about the cross. And then the week after that, since it's Resurrection Sunday, we're going to talk about the resurrection. And then after that, though... We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians, and this is all the negative stuff. This is all the thou shalt not portion of the scriptures as it relates to 1 Corinthians. When we get to 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to talk about marriage. And we're going to have an extended level of children's church because we're going to be very specific on that and how that plays in. Because God talks about it not just from the negative perspective, but from the positive perspective of sex is a tremendous gift, which makes it something which is tremendously subject to abuse and to misuse and to therefore destruction and sin. But it's also something meant for blessing and enjoyment and protection and procreation and glorifying God. And we're going to talk about that, too. That's in three weeks, okay? Those of you who are married, be sure you're here for that, all right? It'll be good. You'll want to not miss that. You won't want to miss the cross and the resurrection either, but be sure you get back for that one too, all right? Let's keep things in proper perspective, right? The reason we are here is because of the cross and the resurrection, but it has implications for every area of life, even the most private, amen? All right. So let's get into the 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Now, the city of Corinth was a center for sexual immorality. In fact, in Greek literature, there's a verb that is used one place to describe someone who is particularly immoral, and the verb is Corinthianize. means to act like a Corinthian to be a sexually immoral person. And in fact, at one point in the city's history, there were over at the temple of Aphrodite, who was a goddess of erotic love and seafarers. So if you were a sailor and you were into erotic love, you worshipped Aphrodite, and it was, it was both. It was a center for Aphrodite, and it was a port town with two ports. So they had a lot of sailors walking around. And there were over a thousand prostitutes at one point in Corinth's history. 
of both sexes at the temple of Aphrodite. And for a fee, they could provide you with a worship experience connected to the goddess. And the idea was, uh, and in addition to that, the Greek philosophers taught that, that as a sort of mind or, or spirit-body dualism, right? That the mind was the part of you that really mattered. It was the higher senses. It was the part of you that was spiritual. It was the part of you most like God. And the body was something less. It was low. It was the animal part of you. And, and when in, in, Greek, in the Greek idea, your soul was immortal, but your body was going into the grave. And death was great because it separated you from the prison of your body and brought you into connection with God in sort of a pantheistic you know, absorption into the divine kind of idea. Now, against that, Christians believe not only in, in the resurrection of Christ, but in the bodily resurrection of Christ. In other words, that the body is not nothing, that is very significant, that you are not just someone who has a body, you are someone with a body. And that your body and what it does affects who you are. Amen? And you affect your body by what you think and how you behave. And your body also affects you by how it is, right? Anybody who has ever been sick knows this innately, right? How hard is it to be nice to people when you don't feel good, right? It's hard, right? Because you... Your body feels ratty, and then you feel ratty. And you get grumpy with everybody, right? Um, Also, but you can also affect your bodily health by how you think. You really can. If you are under emotional stress, it eventually burns out your adrenal glands which is part of your body, right? So you're not just someone who has a body, you're a person with a body, and your body is important. But the Greeks in their philosophy believed that it didn't matter what you did with your body. And so Paul quotes uh, a couple of sayings that are kind of current among the Corinthians. Uh and they believe that, you know, hey, whatever I do with the body doesn't affect me. It isn't who I really am. And so they had this slogan, all things are lawful for me. And the food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. So the sense is, um, you know, on the one hand, they said, well, all things are lawful for me. What, what they had done was they had taken Paul's teaching that as a believer, we don't any longer have to obey the Mosaic law to then say, nothing governs me morally. I don't have to do, there's, I don't have to do anything because there is no right and wrong, which is a perversion of Scripture. But they were perverting Scripture to justify their sexual perversion. And they said, well, see, Paul said that the law doesn't apply to us anymore. And in a certain sense, that's true, that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament law on my behalf. So I don't have to, as an example, go sacrifice a goat for my sins anymore, right? 
But that does not mean that therefore God has no moral expectations for my behavior. But that's how they took it. And they said, well, I guess I can just do whatever blows my hair back because Christ has fulfilled the law. So party on, let the good times roll. (laughs) No. And they said also, well, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And, And the stomach in Greek thought was viewed as the seat of your bodily desires. And it was this viewed also as the seat of your emotions. So as an example, if you're a Greek person, you would say something like this. Now, don't get the wrong idea, but they would say something like this, that my, I love you with all of my intestines, which is weird, all right? From our scene, that's a little strange, right? Or when, you know, when it says that Jesus saw the crowds and he was moved with compassion, it literally reads, Jesus saw the crowd and his bowels, his intestines, his splunkna, were moved toward the people. Now, obviously, in our setting, if we talk about someone looking at someone and having a bowel movement, we mean something totally different, right? But in, the Greek, in a Greek setting... It's the guts, you know, say, I love you from the gut, you know, from the bottom, we would say from the bottom of my heart, they would say from the bottom of my guts, I love you, okay, Um, but the guts were also viewed as the center of your bodily desires, so if you were hungry, it was because your body and your guts desired to eat, and that was a legitimate desire, and you ought to satisfy it, if you're a Greek, that's how you thought, I have... I, I get tired, and so I sleep. I get hungry, so I eat. I become sexually aroused, and so I use my sex organs for the purpose for which they exist. You see the logic that they're operating under? Well, I have a desire, therefore I ought to satisfy it. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. The sex organs are for sex, and sex is for sex organs, so let's have at it. And that's the argument. And Paul says, hang on. It is true that we as Christians are not bound by the Old Testament law anymore because through faith in Christ, Christ's perfect obedience covers our disobedience, and his obedience is credited to my account. But that does not mean that we can therefore do whatever we want. All our natural human desires are tainted by sin. And so many of the things that we want to do are not holy. Amen? And on top of that, Jesus died not so that we could be sinfully lawless, but so that we could be filled with the Spirit and enabled to be more than simply outwardly holy. Jesus' fulfillment of the law, his his obedience to the law, does not mean, well, now I don't have to be moral. What it means is, is that I am able, because I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to achieve a higher standard of obedience than anybody who did not have the Spirit and only had the law could ever attain. Right? That's part of the point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says over and over, 
You have heard that it was said to the men of old, do not commit adultery. Since this is pertinent, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's Jesus' point? Not that looking at a woman lustfully is the same as adultery. It's not. But what he is saying is this, is that lust is a form of the same sin as adultery. And don't think because you have stayed out of someone's bed that you are therefore sexually pure. You're not. Because thoughts count too. And the only way to have your thoughts purified is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the point of Jesus fulfilling the law was that we would have the Holy Spirit to enable us to live by a higher standard than what the law required. Not a lesser one. I'm not angry. I'm just passionate. Okay? And I'm passionate because I love you. And I don't want anybody to get dragged down by that. And please don't mistake me being energetic here for being angry. Because I'm not. I love you. And I don't want particularly you young men to get enslaved to this. It's easy to get enslaved. I spent part of my teenage life enslaved. I don't want you to go through the same thing. Okay? Paul says, verse 13, God is going to destroy both the belly and its desire. Your bodily desires are not eternal, in other words. And as believers in Christ, we're going to experience the resurrection of the body. And we're going to have then a different kind of body and experience life differently. We're not going to need to eat. And it's doubtful that we will have sex. We will have renewed and restored desires. And it's not to say that sex or sexual desire is necessarily unholy. See also chapter 7. But these things belong to this life, and they are temporary. And so, therefore, we ought not pursue what is merely temporary as if it is eternal. In other words, we, might, we ought not take a good thing and make it into an ultimate thing. We might not take a good thing and make it into a God thing and pursue it as if that's all there is to life. That's Paul's point. When he says God is going to destroy both the body and its desires, he is not saying the body is bad. What he is saying is, is that we ought not pursue the stuff of this life as if that's all that matters. Because it's not. And one day we're going to have renewed bodies and restored desires back to how God had designed them to be. And we're going to experience life differently. And so we can't get wrapped up in as, as if these things are all that matters. They aren't. And that leads to the next sentence where Paul says, what and who the body is for, which is the Lord. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He created us to worship and to glorify him in every aspect of our lives. 
and that includes our bodily desires, and that includes our sexual desires. And since Jesus Christ is the Savior of both our souls and our bodies, then he is Lord not only over our souls, but also over our bodies. Amen? And he therefore has the right to tell us what we may and may not do with them. His purpose in saving us is to transform us and set us free from sin and death and deliver us from hell that we might bring him glory, not to save us so that we could do whatever we sinfully want. Now look with me at verse 14 here. He says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now one of the things that Paul does, and I've tried to emphasize this about every section we go through, Every time Paul gives instruction in the book of 1 Corinthians, what he does is he ties it back in some way to the gospel. Because the theme of the book of 1 Corinthians, if you, if if you want to know what it is, it's this. I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so every time he gives moral instruction, he goes back to the gospel. And that's what he's doing here in verse 14. He's tying all this instruction about the body to the fact that God raised Jesus' body. That's part of the gospel. And for Paul, the message of the gospel is not simply the message by which we're justified from our sin. It's also the message by which we are delivered from sin's power over us day to day and are enabled to live out the new life. And so Paul says, look, you need to understand that Jesus was raised and you're going to be raised too. And it's not simply a testimony of of the fact that uh, Jesus is God and so therefore he had victory over death. It's also a demonstration of the fact that the God who gives new life to Jesus is also the God who gives new life to his children. And Jesus died to forgive your sins. He rose to give you new life, to redeem your body and transform your life. And so the implication of his statement here in verse 14 is, how can those whose bodies have been redeemed through the resurrection of Jesus do unholy things with those same bodies. You get me? You understand here what Paul is saying? If you have been raised with Jesus at the resurrection, how can you then do unholy things with the body for which Christ was raised to renew? Move on. There's a lot more here. Uh, Verse 15 to 17, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Here's what Paul is saying. And this is a big theme in all of Paul's letters. That when you are a believer in Christ, you experience and you 
achieve spiritual union with Jesus. There is a sense in which the Bible's language about being part of the body of Christ is not metaphorical, but it's real. We really are spiritually united with Jesus at the moment that we put our trust in Christ. Thus, in fact, we are, as Paul says over and over and over, in Christ you are this. In Christ you are this. In Christ this is true. And in Christ that is true. And he's bringing that to bear on this. So as an example, in Galatians he says, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ you are all spiritually united to Jesus at the moment of your conversion. And you become part of the body of Christ. And Christ dwells in you by the Holy Spirit. And you become, as Peter says in chapter 1, partakers of the divine nature. That you are brought into the very communion that exists within the Godhead. That as the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and as the Father loves the Spirit, and the Spirit the Father, and as the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit the Son, that you, as a believer in Christ, you get adopted into the family of God, and you share in that love and in the nature they share between the persons of God. This is a high, lofty theological idea that will blow your mind if you really think about it very long. And he says, you are in Christ. And so don't you know that when a person is part of Christ, he can't take them and make them also joined with a prostitute. Why? Because when a person has sex with another person, they become one flesh. When a man and a woman are together, they become one flesh. And one flesh does not simply mean that they are fitted together by their neatly corresponding portions. It means there is a union, body and soul, between that man and that woman, and that that union is permanent. Whether the relationship lasts or not, there's a covenant made, and there's a permanent union established. And in fact, the word for one, there's two words for one in Hebrew. One is the word yahid, which means one, singular, singular entity, as in one candle. One microphone, one pulpit, one. But there's another word that's used in Hebrew also, and it's a word for composite unity. And it's the word echad. It's interestingly the word that is used in Deuteronomy 6.4 when Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, echad. He is composite unity. And it hints at the, the, the thing that is fully revealed in the New Testament that there is not just one singular entity who is God, but there are three persons in the one God who are, make a composite oneness. They are one God who is not divisible, but nevertheless is, has within himself distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that is the word, that word echad, that is used in Genesis where it says, and the man and woman will become one flesh. 
In other words, sex is not simply about physical bodies and the exchange of fluids. It is about imitating as image bearers of the one God. The kind of union that God experiences within himself. In fact, in the early church, they would write about Adam and Eve and Seth as being finite, parallel to Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, it's finite. It's human. It's, it's, it's wrapped up in time versus existing in eternity. But nevertheless, it's meant, we're meant to understand those things in parallel. And so it's much bigger than just something you do with your body. It says, don't you understand when you, as a man, are united with a woman, that you become one flesh in the way that God is one. In a similar way to the way that God is one. In a parallel, finite fashion, you are united with that person. And on top of that, you are already, as a believer in Christ, united with Jesus. So how can you take Jesus to the brothel? Answer is, you can't. You wouldn't do that. You can't do that. If you belong to Jesus. Don't you understand this? There is no non-marital sex, biblically speaking. There's no such thing. And the reason is, is that sex is about more than just body. It's about, it's about imaging the image of God in a home. It's about the fact that as you are connected to one another, Paul says elsewhere in, First in Ephesians 5, he says that when a man and his wife are together, that they parallel Christ and the church. That there's something much bigger going on. Not just your body. Something much bigger that is signified and symbolized in this. And that's why it becomes so powerful. Because this, this, is, this is part of the seal of a union that is not meant ever to be broken by anything but death. And there's more reasons here to avoid immorality. Let's press on here. Paul says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other person, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the consistent testimony of the scriptures. It can be summed up in one word as it relates to sexual immorality. Ready? Four letters. Write them down. Flee. Flee. I can shorten it to three letters. Ready? Run! <laughs> 
one. It does not say, see how close you can come without committing immorality. It does not say, play around with immorality. It does not even say, resist immorality. It says, flee. Why? Because God knows us, and we are stupid. And we are not smart enough to resist. (laughs) Okay? We're not smart enough. And we're not holy enough. And so he says, run! Go the other way, as fast as you can. Like Joseph getting out of Dodge when Potiphar's wife comes around, that's what we're supposed to do. She takes a hold of his clothes, so he leaves them with her. (laughs) Okay, I got to be gone. I got to be out of here. Proverbs says it this way, Can a man scoop fire into his lap and not be burned? No. Don't try that, by the way. Don't test that theory. And when, he, when Paul says here, sexual sin is a, is, is a sin against the body, I think what he's saying there is it's a unique kind of sin. It's not uniquely bad necessarily, but it is something that affects more than just your body. In Christian terms, our bodies are not simply something we have. They're part of who we are. And and the fact is, is that when you commit sexual sin, you form a one-flesh body union with that person. You know, if a guy gets drunk, he doesn't become one flesh with alcohol. If a, guy gets, if a guy gets greedy, he doesn't become one flesh with his money. But when he sins sexually with his body, what he's doing is becoming one flesh with that person, and that leaves a scar on him or on her that doesn't heal the same way. If you become greedy, what you need to do to reverse that trend is to stop. And eventually you will heal up from that. But if you sin sexually, it carries a, uh, leaves a mark on you that doesn't quite go away until the redemption. And so Paul is saying, you sin against your own body. Let me just tell you something, by the way, just as an aside. Holiness is repellent from a distance, but when you draw close to it, it becomes very beautiful. And sin is just the opposite. It's attractive from a a distance. But when you get up close to it, you realize you're a slave. I was at my cousin's wedding yesterday, and it it was one of the most beautiful weddings that I have ever been to. And one of the things that made it just spectacular was the obvious love for the Lord that the two of them had. And the very first kiss I found out from the bride's mother that she had ever had or that he had ever had was the one they shared at the altar when the pastor said, Dan, you may kiss your bride. 
And let me tell you, let me tell you something about that. I sat there as a, as a father, and I went, I hope that for my daughters and my sons. Pray that for my daughters and my sons, that they would walk close enough with Jesus that they would avoid all of the garbage that I have paid stupid tax on and that some of you have paid stupid tax on and that you would experience the beauty of the holiness of God in this. And Paul says, he ties this back to the gospel again. He says, look, when you become a believer in Christ, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And here he uses the word that refers to the holy of holies, the place where God's presence dwelt in the Old Testament. You know, they had the temple and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant back there behind that veil where only the high priest could go. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, he says, the Day of Atonement has come. Therefore, the Holy Spirit dwells in you in the same way it dwelt above the cherubim in the temple. Think about that. Because I often think, man, it would have been cool to see the Red Sea crossing and to see God's presence going before them in the desert and all that. Guess what? You got better than that. You've got God's presence within you. You got better than that. And he says, on top of that, all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ have been bought. And the price paid for us was the blood of Christ. The high price, none higher. The Son of God laid down his life to buy us out of slavery to sin. And so the implication is, how then can you engage in immorality? Jesus laid down his life for you that you might not be a slave to sin, and yet you are doing this. How can that be? Don't you know that the Spirit of God dwells within you? And on top of that, don't you know Jesus laid down his life for you? Purchased us so that we wouldn't have to be enslaved to this stuff. And he says, therefore, glorify God with your body as well. Because the purpose of life, I'm not an Anglican, but some of their stuff's pretty good. Westminster Conf Confession in particular is pretty decent. And it says the purpose of life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's pretty good pretty good summary honestly of the lot of scripture glorify god and enjoy him forever and 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 we exist to glorify god we are redeemed to glorify god we are redeemed to put off sin that we might better glorify god glorify god now a lot of application already in this text i know i'm not going to belabor this But let me just tell you this, okay? If you are a person who is not struggling here, praise God for that and continue to flee. Because the scripture says consistently, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
where you get proud about your obedience very often is the moment that you fall into sin. But on the other hand, maybe you're a person who's already sinned. Maybe you still feel the guilt of long ago stuff. Maybe you're fighting right now with some of this. Maybe I would hope there would not be anyone here who is actually doing what Paul is talking about here and visiting prostitutes. But if you are, Jesus died to set you free from that. Maybe you like to read Maxim Magazine or Cosmopolitan or something steamier than that. Maybe you are fighting pornography on the internet or in romance novels, which are basically women's porn. Maybe you're watching some of those shows on HBO, one of the reasons we do not have that at our house. Some of those shows are basically straight-up pornography. Some of the fact that some of them have a reasonable story that goes along with it does not excuse what else they are doing. It's porn. Maybe you have a sex buddy. Maybe you have a friend with benefits. Maybe you just flat-out keep a mistress. And as you hear me talking about this, the weight of your sin feels absolutely crushing. I can tell you from experience what guilt and shame feels like on this. I had a pornography habit for a long time. For all of my teens and a lot of my 20s. And I know what it is like to try to go to church and worship God while you feel like just a total slime ball. I know what that's like. And here's the answer, biblically speaking. That's you. If you sit here and you go, man, this is me. Repent. Repent. Biblically speaking, repentance involves three things. Confession, contrition, change. Confession means going to God and admitting what you're doing, what he thinks of it. Saying, God, I'm watching this show on TV and I know that it's evil. I know that it's immorality to be taking that junk into my eye sockets, and yet I'm watching it, and it's sin. Please forgive me. And there's also ought to be, in biblical repentance, contrition. In other words, a sense that not just of not just admitting what you did, but of actually being sorry, and not sorry that you got caught, but sorry for what you did. And then also then a commitment to change. And then the next side of that, the next step as part of that change process, one of the things you're going to need to do is you're going to need to bring your sin into the light. Because what feeds this junk 
And what keeps it going many times is the guilt and shame that you feel. And the best disinfectant for that is to drag it out into the sunlight and tell somebody. And tell on yourself. It thrives in secrecy and darkness. And so James 5.16, James says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You know, we quote that last part of the verse, but we ignore the context. And the idea is, is that as long as you were enslaved in sin, your prayers bounce off the ceiling. You don't have any power in your prayer as long as you keep your sin secret. So go to your brother or your sister. If you're a man, find a brother in Christ. If you're a woman, find a sister who will pray with you that you can confess to and say, hey, this is where I am. This is not where I was. This is where I am right now. And I need help. Pray with me. And who will ask you. And if your spiritual life stinks, by the way, this may be a reason. Is that you are letting it thrive in the dark. So follow the scriptures. Bring it into the light. And don't just confess to God. Confess to somebody who will poke you in the chest and ask you a question that you don't want to answer. And then last thing. Embrace grace. Embrace grace. Embrace grace. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead to give me new life. So I don't have to be, not only do I not have to be a slave to sin, I don't have to be a slave to guilt anymore. I don't have to be a... a, a, a slave to shame anymore, and neither do you. You can do what I have done and embrace the grace of God and cling to it. You can believe what the Scripture says in Hebrews where it says, He appeared once for all at the end of all the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of all, man, all mankind and will appear a second time not to bring judgment and dealing with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Jesus Christ died once for my sin. I don't have to beat myself up continually then over it, do I? I get to embrace God's grace and then I get to, as Hebrews says elsewhere, that since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, every respect, has been tempted just like we are. Does that include this? Yes. Jesus was a real man. He had real temptations including this one. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, but we have one who is able to sympathize, who is tempted in every respect, just like we are, but without sin. So, conclusion, let us draw near with confidence 
the throne of grace. That we might receive mercy and help in time of need. Amen? Embrace the grace of God. And despite everything, despite everything that we have done, despite everything that we will do, we can find release from the shame and guilt we justly feel. Amen? Jesus Christ died to set me and you free. Not just from this, but from everything of which we are justly ashamed. Embrace the grace of God. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have set me free from sin and death and hell. That you sent your Son to lay down his life so that not just me, but all of these, all of these who would put their trust in Jesus Christ would be those who experience union with Christ, who experience the indwelling of the Spirit, who experience the release from slavery to sin that you have promised us through the resurrection. And Father, I pray that you would set us free indeed, that if there's anyone here who is enslaved to sexual sin, that they would find purity and holiness and grace to restore them. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.